Welcome to Res Talk, your source for the latest news, opinions, and training from top building performance, rating, and auditing experts. Here's your host, committed building science enthusiast and registered professional engineer, Bill Spohn. Welcome back to another episode of the Res Talk Podcast. It's our goal here at the Res Talk Podcast to communicate late breaking news and thoughtful insights brought a broad array of topics in the rapidly expanding world of residential energy ratings to the broad array of stakeholders in the ResNet ecosystem. To the ResNet community, we hear you and wish to engage. 2020 was both a notable and challenging year in so many ways. Beyond everyone learning how to Zoom and Zoom actually becoming a verb, the election of 2020 is sure to go down in history. Now, what impact did the 2020 election have on ResNet's future-oriented mission to make the energy use for all homes transparent? Now, keep in mind this episode was recorded in mid-December 2020, yet will be airing in mid-January 2021. So in today's podcast, we're joined by Carl Chidlow, a registered federal lobbyist, and Steve Baden, executive director of ResNet, as they again pull out the crystal ball to discuss what changes may come about in the world of home performance as a result of the 2020 elections. Carl and Steve help us to understand the possibilities and probabilities of policy change that may happen with the slim majorities, negotiations, and compromise we are all likely to see. Learn how they may be possible bipartisan consensus with an infrastructure bill and the belief that much change will come about through executive order and regulations. We also discuss the implications of the recently passed extension of the 45L tax credit for builders. Steve also notes the two new proposals forwarded to the new administration in Congress. Now, both of these proposals encourage the energy use calculation as a factor in the mortgage approval process. We discuss the cabinet nominees focusing on the climate agenda and learn about the potential impact that Gina McCarthy, the energy czar, can have on home performance. Carl also gives his definition of a czar. Steve closed it up by describing what they found most surprising as they think back to ResTalk episode 57, which first aired in September 2020, where we discussed the upcoming election. So let's listen in to Carl and Steve and see what they have to say about the 2020 election. Carl, could you introduce yourself, please? Thanks, Bill. My name is Carl Chidlow. I'm a partner with a firm called Winning Strategies Washington, obviously based out of Washington, D.C., of the federal advocacy lobbyist for ResNet and have been doing so for, I think, about nine years now. Very good. And Steve, who are you? I'm the executive director of ResNet. I work closely with Carl on advocacy and tracking of what's going on in terms of federal legislation and policies. Thank you both, and thank you for being here. And some of the things that we'll be talking about here as we record the episode is about the majorities and the slim majorities in both the House and the Senate. How does that sort of play out in terms of what we'll be seeing in terms of policy for home performance? Carl, can you give us an idea? The slim majorities, I think, make it very unlikely that any massive overhauls, not just on energy policy, but I think anything that has the slightest bit of controversy associated with it. So it's going to take uh, President Biden and Mitch McConnell and Speaker Pelosi and others sort of coming together and hammering out agreements, which they're actually trying to do today. We're taping this in December, but they're trying to get the appropriations bill and a, another COVID relief package across the finish line before December. Negotiations will be key. Compromise will be key. There's not a one-party rule situation where things can just be rammed through. So it's going to be very interesting. 
what you'll see, though, is that President-elect Biden has put forth a lot of nominees that are going to be focused on the climate agenda. And I think they're going to rely on regulatory changes, working through the agencies, perhaps in some cases, executive orders that will dictate policy and not relying on Congress to forge ahead on massive bills that have some sticky wickets attached to them. Steve, do you have thoughts on this about the majorities in the House and Senate and the impact? Yeah, I think Carl's right. It's not going to be able to do sweeping changes that many had thought he saw in the campaign. I think the American people wants people to work together and want a divided government. Again, sweeping bills, I agree with Carl, will probably not be the same, but I think there is hope. For instance, I think there is a kind of bipartisan consensus that some kind of infrastructure bill needs to be done. Americans' infrastructure is crumbling, and clearly the economy is such that jobs are needed. That may be a ground where some commonality could be reached. The House passed a infrastructure bill last year, and residential efficiency was in it. So I can think that at least from the House side, in terms of the compromises, there'll be an advocacy to have uh, residential efficiency as part of any stimulus package. But other than that, I think it's going to be the action is going to be through executive order and regulations. And if you actually look in the past number of years, in the Trump administration, most of the policies he put in were through executive order. So this is nothing unusual. The good news is that they can be done, but an incoming administration, as we will see in the Biden administration, can undo a lot of those executive orders because if it's issued by a president, a later president can undo it. That's pretty much the lay of the land. What's going to have to pass is stuff that can be a consensus and probably not involve a lot of money or new regulations. So I think it's going to be interesting if Biden and Pelosi and McConnell are able to work on kind of accommodation. Got that. Going back to Carl, what are the, any cabinet-level changes or uh, assignments that have been made that will be impactful in this regard with home performance and home energy? Sure. Just today, or maybe it was yesterday, um, speaking about infrastructure, former Mayor Pete Buttigieg was put forward as the transportation secretary nominee. Buttigieg had a very comprehensive plan relating to U.S. infrastructure, and Steve's right on point that the conversation regarding our housing stock and building efficiency, residential energy efficiency, has now crossed the transom and is now in the bucket of infrastructure versus being over sort of in the energy camp. So I think that's a positive development because politicians, they like to work on infrastructure because it brings home the bacon. It's a bridge. It's a dredging project. It's a a road improvement. So there's a lot of things that both members of Congress and senators can get behind, and it gives it a bit of momentum in terms of passage. With residential energy efficiency, whether it's incentives or tax credits to encourage it, If that's part of a overall infrastructure conversation, I think that has a lot of bipartisan support. So Buttigieg is one. An interesting pick was the nomination, or I don't know if he actually needs Senate confirmation, but naming former Secretary of State and former Senator John Kerry as a special envoy. I would assume that Kerry's role will mostly be somewhat diplomatic, traveling the world and trying to re-engage on things like the Paris Climate Agreement and and other sort of globetrotting exercises. But he will have a seat in the cabinet room 
when the cabinet is meeting. So it's a sort of ambassador without portfolio, but certainly someone who can will have the ear of the president and can probably reach into all of the agencies to get points across or to get that ever-elusive cross-agency collaboration to occur. And then there is uh, another mention, I'm not sure if it's an official designation yet, but the former EPA administrator, I think her name is Gina McCarthy, she is looking like she's going to be named a so-called climate czar. So instead of the EPA administrator again, she will again have a role in an office in the White House, close proximity to the Oval Office. And she is someone who worked uh, long and hard on a lot of Obama's initiatives regarding climate the clean power rule and, and some other things. So she's going to be back in business and giving people access to the Oval Office, being able to just walk across the hall and speak to the chief of staff, speak to other ministers of state, so to speak, as opposed to being over in another building across the way and you have to wait a week to get your appointments taken care of. So there's certainly, Biden is certainly signaling that he's going to have some heavy hitters by his side conducting this climate initiative. That's very good. Between Buttigieg, who's seen as more of a progressive, but is going to have a play in infrastructure. Oh, the other nominee that's of great interest is uh, former Michigan Governor Jennifer Granholm. She was just named for Secretary of the Department of Energy. She is very well known for her advocacy on electric vehicles and, and other climate initiatives when she was governor. So it's a high-powered group, and it's one thing to name a former physicist to be the head of the Department of Energy. I would argue that it's a lot more effective to have a former governor who understands the art of compromise, understands what constituents need to be heard, and which can be ignored. And again, having the gravitas to be able to walk into the Oval Office at any given moment and advocate for what her agency or in the case of Secretary Buttigieg, like assuming he's confirmed, this is a, a high-powered bunch. These people aren't going to be marginalized. Thank you, Carol. And Steve, I'm sure you have some reflections on the appointments here that we're speaking about. I do. I agree. Echo what Carl said. The one thing about the interesting about the former governor of Michigan is that she was able to get quite a bit of work done with the Republican legislature. So she understands how to reach out across the aisle and get uh, Republicans signed on on key initiatives. So that wisdom, I think, is, as Carl said, is a definite plus because I think that it's more than technical issues. The secretary is supposed to be administrator and lead the agency. And she does have a pretty good record on efficiency. One of the things that is all total in this that I think is significant and really a change in any prior administration is the President-elect Biden stated that he's going to task each federal agency to come up within his first 100 days with a climate plan, how their agency specifically will undertake projects, policies to help combat climate change. That comprehensive approach, instead of coming from one, is going to be pretty deep. And I think it's going to open the door from some exciting things we can look at from HUD in terms of affordable housing and also in terms of mortgage financing. Question back to Carl. Could you just define the term czar? I think we all hear it a lot, but you have probably a deeper understanding, a richer understanding. Give us an idea of what it means to be a czar. It goes back to the days of the Russian Republic. But in the modern sense, it's 
sort of an ambassador without portfolio, someone who's empowered. Again, power in the executive branch is proximity to the president and respect. Giving somebody that title obviously means their calls are going to get returned. Members of Congress are going to seek that individual out. Czar, in the Russian sense, was an all-powerful leader. I don't see Gina McCarthy being more powerful than the president, but obviously it's an empowerment designation and someone to be reckoned with. I'll harken back to when the Department of Homeland Security was first created after 9-11. They put a former governor in charge of it, and the person had like two staff members for about a year. So not a lot able to get done. Again, the person had access to the president, and I may be digressing a little bit, but I think McCarthy is going to have a staff around her that are well-situated, well-versed, and if somebody says, the president told me to do this, and I'm following up on the president's order, then that's where the real power comes from. So you see from time to time that certain, and particularly in the most recent administration, some cabinet secretaries are out, they're fired via Twitter, they're on the bench, so to speak. And I think what Biden is signaling is that these people are going to be enforcing what he wants to see done and will be empowered to do so. So they'll be able to testify before Congress, do public venues, issue directives. But again, it's proximity to the Oval Office that is really where power derives from on, on the executive branch side. Bill, the other thing about the czar point is, is that they basically don't answerable to anyone but the president. So they're not within the bureaucracy of any particular program. And Gina McCarthy, I think, has an opportunity because what I foresee she's going to do is shepherd these climate plans from all the agencies. And since she's not stuck to one of the energy, she has the ability to be able to reach over and put pressure on or speak on behalf of the president and lean on them on coming up with meaningful paths. So I think this is very important that it focuses it onto one person. In the past, unfortunately, the climate stuff and energy stuff was dispersed among various people. And this is a clear showing that President-elect Biden takes this seriously, and he actually means to get some things done just besides doing talking. Yeah. Well, if I could elaborate on that, it's having worked on ResNet's behalf and for many years now, you often traipse be between the EPA on one thing, you're over at the Department of Energy on something slightly different, the jurisdictions are a little blurred, the budgets are up and down, and creating this sort of czar or czarina role creates a funnel so that if things are not getting done at the EPA or the two agencies will be sort of forced to collaborate versus working against each other or in a competition sometimes. So she'll be able to quarterback these two agencies that are responsible for climate policy. And I think that's been missing for a while. The EPA has their one regulatory role, but they've also got a lot of other issues to deal with from toxic substances to clean air to everything under the sun practically. And then the Department of Energy, and there's even just jurisdictional issues on things like Energy Star. EPA has it up to one point, then it turns over to DOE on another, and they sort of have to collaborate, but they don't. I'm not trying to be critical, but what Biden is signaling that, okay, we need to take the stuff that both of those agencies do and, and make it work in this puzzle uh, and fit all the pieces together. 
So if I use it, the sort of the more business terms, cross-functional and look for synergies, does that? It's integration, yes, yes. Yeah, integration, okay, very good. So regulatory changes, are they on the agenda or do you think they can happen? What does it look like? Because that's sometimes how changes are made, massive changes are made. What does the program look like for regulatory change? I think what you're going to see, and again, we're in the past when you're hearing this, there's right now the Trump administration is pushing out the door. They're finishing touches on a lot of regulatory rollbacks, and they're trying to get things put in place, regulatory things put in place before the clock runs out on January 20th. And this happens during every administration. There's a a whole cavalcade of rules that just have been lingering and then all of a sudden are pushed out the door at the last minute. If some of those are really problematic for the Biden administration, they'll have to reverse course, put them back out for public comment. I don't want to bore the listeners with all the rulemaking minutiae, but there is a process where there's, let's say the Biden administration wants to move forward on, let's say, a green mortgage concept. They would have to issue a Notice in the Federal Registry, there'd be a period of public comment, stakeholders put in their arguments for and against, those are reviewed by the agency, they're kicked over to the White House. It is an excruciating process, but it is a transparent process, and it allows for some consensus, and it allows for everyone who may be impacted to be heard. There are ways to slow it down and gum it up. But that's what I think you'll be seeing in the coming year is a lot of notice of proposed rulemaking that is put out there. And this is what we intend to do. This is our goals for doing it. And then it's off to the races in terms of trying to get it across the finish line. But the agencies have the ability to take the intent of Congress and formulate uh, rules and regulations based on that. So I think they will look to what Congress has attempted to do in the past and maybe gotten close to the altar, but not to the full marriage. And they'll try to take some of those ideas and push them through the administrative procedures process using the regulatory calendar. And Congress can weigh in in that process by talking to the White House, talking to the cabinet secretaries and encouraging it to move forward. Let's say the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee, several members can sign a letter in support of the rule to signal congressional intent. There's a lot of gamesmanship that goes on, but Congress is not neutered in any way. They can certainly encourage and lobby the administration to move more quickly or to provide funding for the implementation of an action or strip funding on something that they don't want to see happen. So it's going to be an interesting game of chess. But again, the intentions are being signaled very loudly that they want to get stuff done. One of the things that Biden has clearly signaled that he's intending to do early in his administration that deal with presidential decrees and regulations is he clearly made that his first order priority is to have the United States rejoin the Paris Climate Accord. As you may know that early within the Trump administration, the U.S. dropped out of that. And Biden said that's one of the first executive actions he's going to do is rejoin it, particularly with Gina McCarthy now being the sole domestic link for climate change. I see you'll see two pieces that I think will now be aimed at and doing. The first one was, particularly since Gina McCarthy was the author of it, I can see that the regulations for the clean power requirement being put in and being addressed fairly soon. 
And the other one is out there is also the regulations that the Obama administration would do made in terms of the next generation of mileage standards for automobiles will probably be revisited again. Trump basically undid those requirements. And I can foresee, particularly with the Secretary of Energy's interest in clean vehicles and McCarthy's when she was head in EPA, and also Pete Buttigieg, who was supporting these is when he ran for president, I think you'll see a move to reinstate those MPG standards that was put in by the Obama administration. And then beyond that, because the legislation is going to be tough to get through, I think there's going to be a lot of creative look in terms of what can be done to meet these policies through executive action. And to me, one of the most exciting things for us is what could be done in terms of mortgage financing. Speaking of things that are near and dear to ResNet's heart, uh, I'm going to ask first Steve to give a little bit of background and then Carl to give an opinion on where we're headed with the 45L credit. Again, this is being recorded in December, so Carl can go into more detail. There is a move to, in this late in the session, do an extension of tax credits, which include the 45L. And he can go more into that. But our main emphasis is going to be is that, depending on how long it's extended, but we need some basic changes to the 45L tax credit. Its reference is over almost 20 years old now. Also, the amount of money that was then is not as nearly represents what the costs are nowadays. So I see you'll see a movement into reforming. And then also, I think there's a consensus that these kind of tax credits, if they're going to move the market, can't be on and off. You can't have it one year and then go back and have it not have it the next year, and then go backwards and retroactively put it. So I think what you're going to see is a movement to update the tax credit as it looks like now, and then also create a little bit more dependability by having a longer period of time. This was included in the House version of the infrastructure bill, and I think it's going to be there, and I think that's going to be one of the exciting things. But the more mechanics, I'm going to lateral to Carl to talk about 45L. Yeah. So as I might have mentioned earlier, Congress is finishing up their knitting on not only keeping the government operational and funded through September of next year, there's also COVID, another round of COVID stimulus that's being negotiated as we speak. And again, we're this is being recorded on December 16th. So by the 17th, this may be old news, but there is an extenders package that is floating around, and this will be a massive must-pass bill. I doubt many members of Congress will know the nitty-gritty of it, but they'll just have to vote for it to keep the economic stimulus moving forward and to keep the government open. 45L will most likely be a clean extension, so there won't be any changes that would impact any of the work that's gone on in 2020. But as Steve mentioned, ResNet's been engaged with other groups such as NRDC and the Alliance and BCEEE and others to try to hammer out some technical improvements to 45L, which would include a five-year time horizon. So it wouldn't be one year on, one year off. or So there'd be some market certainty for a period of five years. It does create a performance path that would tie to the IECC. And then there's also a prescriptive path that would allow folks operating in the current construct to continue their work. But even the prescriptive element would be 10%, I believe, is the number more stringent than the current law. It'll be more aggressive in terms of energy efficiency overall, this new concept. And 
legislation doesn't necessarily die. It just sort of goes on the shelf. So the construct is there. It's been passed by the House this year in 2020. I expect that provision to be resurrected in the 117th, the new Congress, and we'll continue to keep a very close eye on that along with other stakeholders. I will mention, though, that tax policy is tough, and these extenders are often hard to pull one out and tinker with it. They travel as a herd. But there will be an opportunity during the Biden administration for some tinkering on tax policy. As, as folks might remember, Trump's sort of big accomplishment was a massive tax overhaul. But some of those provisions, particularly the tax cuts for individuals, are set to expire. I don't have the exact date in front of me, but that issue is going to have to be addressed. And that will open up the gates for other tinkering on other tax provisions. And there's also some tax benefits that were created for businesses because of the pandemic. And those will either have to be renewed or refreshed or continued. So there will be an arena for tax policy to be tinkered with, probably in this Congress coming up come January. So there will be an opportunity for 45L to get worked over and hopefully be, be part of this minor tax bill that I see happening in the next two years. So we're looking at a clean extension for 2020, but the work continues for modernization, let's call it, of the credit. Now, we've talked a little bit about residential housing now being brought into the arena of the overall infrastructure. What are some of the goals for this? Or what would you see would be the best thing that could happen in terms of residential housing policy being brought into infrastructure? A couple things. I do want to mention that Steve and I have had conversations with Congressman Levin from California. We've shared some legislative text proposed with his office. Congressman Levin represents the San Diego area, which is the home of a lot of veterans, and he is a subcommittee chair on the Veterans Subcommittee. So he has, or the Veterans Committee, so he does have some jurisdiction over the VA housing program. And that is what we're targeting right now, is that there would be some administrative change to the way the Veterans Administration orchestrates their loan program, which would hopefully create a calculation for energy use in the mortgage and make homes more affordable for veterans. So that is a work in progress. We gave them that legislative language several months ago, and then we got into election season. But again, January is a, a new time. And then we also, Steve was actually reached out to by the minority staff, meaning the Democratic staff on the Senate Banking Committee, which has jurisdiction over. So we have shared a white paper back with the Banking Committee that would, again, encourage HUD to use the administrative procedures, use their regulatory authority to basically take the tenants of what's called the SAVE Act, which creates a mortgage calculation in the underwriting process and see if HUD is interested in, in tackling that without Congress having to pass a massive bill. So these are two things we've got, two irons in the fire, so to speak. Those would open up a lot of opportunities for folks to retrofit their houses when, when they're either close to selling or encourage a retrofit in order for them to be encouraged to buy a property. Understanding the cost of owning that home, not just interest and taxes and obviously the principal, but it costs money every month to pay your water and your electric and your heating bill. 
we're going to try to push on that. One of the proposals that's out there is also a, sort of a rebate incentive bill that's been moving around for about eight years. It's called the Homes Act, or Hope for Homes. It keeps getting a little bit better title every year, but it's a, an effort by Congressman Welch of Vermont. And if a homeowner was to retrofit a home and achieve a 20% improvement in energy use, there would be a rebate granted to them to take care of some of the costs of the retrofit. So there's incentives that people have been toying with to encourage the retrofit action. But I think the real holy grail is seeing the cost of energy on the HUD sheet when you're in those negotiations or you're shopping for a house or you're getting your property ready to sell to, instead of putting that money into landscaping and maybe a new sidewalk, you're going to put it into a new HVAC system or improving the windows or redoing the roof or putting in some more insulation to lower that energy use score on the HUD calculation. And that's going to be like uh, adrenaline for the market. Steve, your reflections on these incentives and proposals? The rebate thing was part of the in-house infrastructure bill. Also, it was within the Biden campaign's energy features he was going to be promoting. The problem with a rebate program, it gets really expensive, whereas the mortgage process is basically just open the loan. And I think it's really important because it does two things. What it really does is for the first time ever, treats energy as a cost of housing. So for every dollar a month that you can be calculated to show that you reduce the energy bill for that home, that's a dollar more that the homeowner can do. And it has, as Carl says, the ability to make retrofits and put it through the mortgage loan as long as the retrofits save more energy than added to the mortgage by doing those retrofits. But it also, for new homes, opens the door for more people to be able to afford high-performance energy-efficient homes because currently, if it's not considered in the mortgage process, you have to pay for those upgrades out of pocket. And that makes a lot of the housing that could be more available out of the reach of first-time home buyers and middle class. So if we could make that as part of the calculation and you get a boost in your buying power for every dollar you save on energy, it's a game changer. And it adds some rationality in the process because we all know that the energy is probably the largest cost of owning a home outside of the mortgage loan. It's higher than insurance and it's higher than taxes. So I think making that sea change could be done. And again, the SAVE Act has had a lot of popularity, but it's never gotten through Congress. And I think we have the ability now with the new administration looking at climate actions, something like this to go. Also, I kind of want to brag is that Congressman Levin is also the whose district is Westnet's based in. So not only does he have the veteran thing, but he also has an understanding. He's really committed. He was actually, prior to getting elected to Congress, his main forte was being a clean power advocate. So he has well-versed on efficiency and building performance. And we're approaching it two ways. One as a modification as legislation to the VA loan program for veterans. But also, if we can looking at that using this new idea of having a cross-agency climate action, seeing we can get this in as changes to the way that mortgage loans are calculated. And our opportunity is great right now because I think close to 80% of all mortgage loans are either going through FHA, VA, which are federally insured, direct insured programs, or Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac currently are still under receivership by the federal government. 
And that means that HUD has a lot of power in directing how this would go. So it's interesting. We've gotten a white paper on it. The Senate Banking has it. And there'll be a notice, and, and we're going to be distributing it to the resident membership in the near future. And by the time this is aired, it will be available. Very good. So I'm going to ask you both to answer a question because you're both on episode 57 back in August. So that was a few months ago. What would be, and we did promise to have you back to talk about the results of the election. And now it's sort of, it's near term, it's early, things are just starting to take place and appointments are being announced and plans are being put into place. But I'm going to ask first Carl and then Steve to talk about the most surprising things from the position of August to sitting here in December while we're recording. So Carl, go first. Sure. What I was most interested in was how Joe Biden, once he got the nomination, how he was going to campaign during a pandemic. Obviously, Trump continued with his rallies. He sort of ignored the mask-wearing concept and uh, was sort of cavalier about how he conducted himself in terms of public safety. Biden from a public safety, but also from a messaging perspective, chose to have these drive-by rallies, much smaller venues, social distancing was enforced. It was a bit of a jump ball, which was going to work. Plus, the Democrats made a very conscious effort to encourage folks to vote early, use mail-in voting systems, which were embryonic in some states. Pennsylvania, for example, had never allowed early voting unless you had sort of a medical reason or you were serving your country overseas. So they opened that wide open. And there was one professor from the University of Florida that was tracking all of this information and seeing, I think there was 20 million more people roughly that voted in this election than voted four years ago. So turnout was sky high. It worked from the Democrats' perspective. It was a little nail-biter after election day that was more like election week with all the tabulations and, oh, we've got another batch of votes coming in from Maricopa County. It was crazy to watch, but the Democrats got it done. And I was most surprised by the outcome in Georgia. People don't remember this, but Georgia used to be a Democratic state, more of a Southern Democratic flavor. But the Democratic Party down there has really resurrected itself. And I heard different numbers, but several hundred thousand people were registered to vote over the last two years because of the African-American John Lewis, Stacey Abrams leadership down there really got a lot of people to register and a surprising result. It was only a 12,000 vote victory for Biden, but now we've got another nail biter with the two Senate races down there. So just the record number of people who chose these alternative voting systems, the fact that it, it all went out off without a hitch. And I will say it's important if you're a Democrat or if you're a Republican, who the governor is of your state does matter because in Pennsylvania, they had a Democratic governor who was making sure that there was no funny business going on and backing up the vote counters and not casting shade on the situation. There was a lot of worry that this thing would be in litigation right now or on its way to the Supreme Court, but it all happened without very many hitches. I think you'll continue to see that in future elections where there is a foot on the gas pedal in terms of early voting and making sure your people are turned out before election day. 
I mean, it was like 110 million people who voted absentee or early, which is just unheard of. So I was very pleased by the record numbers of people who turned out and by the integrity and vim and vigor of the system to hold itself up to attacks and retroactive attacks on it. And then just the whole, not to opine too much, but I think the most dramatic situation was when the president himself came down with COVID and was flown via helicopter to Walter Reed. And it was just sort of made for TV. I mean, it was, but just so many different things happening. The virtual conventions, kind of boring. I'm used to going to the conventions where there's a lot of parties and after parties going on. So a lot different being on your couch, but those sort of had their own way of swaying the electorate. And the polar opposites of how the two parties conducted themselves during the pandemic. So I don't think we'll ever see another one like this again, and hopefully we won't. But yeah, this was one for the record books. My 15-year-old daughter told me, she's like, Dad, people are going to be studying this for decades. And uh, she's very, she's right. There's going to be a lot of political science is going to be done on this. But the Constitution and the Founding Fathers and the changes that have been made over the 200 years of our existence, plus it stood the weathering, and we should all be very proud of that. Absolutely. Steve, can you share your perspective looking back to August when we last spoke? Two surprises. First, I want to echo Carl, is the turnout. Who would have guessed that was such a massive turnout with a pandemic? It was not only Democrats that turned out. For instance, Donald Trump received more votes than any Republican candidate in American history. What we're seeing is overall a large turnout that defied that people in August really didn't foresee that this would happen. We saw lines of people standing in line to vote for five, six hours. So it did show that. And I do think that once we get over the controversy about mail-in and early voting, I think it's going to be the future. Democracy fries by engaged voters. And if we make it easier for voters to vote, it will make better. And it just early voting just makes all kinds of sense in the world. And I think we're going to see a number of states, such as California, Utah, Oregon, and Washington, that have sent ballots out to everyone. I can foresee more governors doing that. So I think that's one surprise. The other surprise to me, though, was the results. While Biden had led in the polls for the longest time, what's interesting, the results to me was, even though Biden won, the Democratic Party itself didn't fare so well. It did not take over the Senate, which was projected in August. And even until the week to the, the election, it actually lost one governorship. And the House, which is the biggest surprise, is that the Republicans made gains in the House. So what you found is unusual aspect of ticket splitting. People would vote for Biden for president, but uh, Republican for the Senate race. For instance, even in a Georgia case, Biden won it, but neither candidate, other candidates carried it. So that's why they had the runoff election. But those are the biggest surprises. One is the turnout, which I think is one of, as Carl said, one of the healthiest things you can see for our democracy. And the second one was that it defied projections in terms of ticket splitting and the fact that we have a divided government now, where the House is closely Democratic, Senate is closely Republican, and we have a Democratic president. So those were the surprises for me. One of the more troubling trends, I think, is this perpetual sort of urban versus rural divide that we're seeing. The Democrats appear to be gaining ground in sort of the suburban areas, the more affluent areas of the country that maybe 20 years ago were 
more Republican leaning. The Democratic Party is sort of more entrenched in the urban core and the immediate suburban rings. And the Republicans, they're really dug in in the rural communities. In my home state of Virginia, we've taken a couple trips, just one to cut down the family Christmas tree, and you get 45 minutes outside of Washington, D.C. area, and you see Trump signs everywhere. So it's troubling for our country that there is this polarization, not just ideological, but regional. There's one thing I heard about the other day where Cory Booker, who represented Newark when he was mayor of Newark, a troubled urban area, obviously from a, a very congested state of New Jersey, is teaming up with his counterpart from Democratic Senator Tester from Montana. And the two of them are trying to figure out where's the common ground on rural versus urban policy, because we can't just be split down the middle based on how many rings you are outside of the urban core. And the Democrats do have a real problem connecting with folks in the old industrialized areas, certainly in the communities that are based on agriculture. And the Democrats are comfortable in their urban enclaves, but we can't survive this for the next hundred years. We need to sort of figure out a way to bridge that divide. So if you look at the map, you look at the counties that are red and the counties that are blue, and you can point out the cities where it's blue. And so it's a bad trend. It's gotten worse, but there are issues that aren't clear cut that are just rural or just urban. So anyway, I'm waxing here, but it's a problem. And hopefully Biden understands this. He won Pennsylvania, which has its own sort of urban versus rural divide. And I think he's going to hold true to issues that are not going to inflame the sensibilities of country folk versus city folk. I think he's going to be purposeful in that. Hopefully everybody, for the most part, unless you're homeless, you live in a house or an apartment. So housing is something that everybody should be concerned with and affordable and comfortable housing. So maybe it's an issue where we can see some light in terms of bipartisanship, but just the tension between this rural and urban is a problem. And it was on full display on election day. Gentlemen, covered a lot of territory, more than I thought we would. <laughs> That's a very uh, interesting topic for yourselves as well as the listeners too. Let's close up here and wrap up any closing thoughts for the listeners as we head into what are the recording here at the end of December and towards January. Just a couple of sentences. First, Steve. Thank you for inviting us back because I think it was good to give this update just going on. There are going to be some exciting things. Stay tuned with ResNet through our various communication channels. We can update you because your voice needs to be heard. And one of the jobs that Carl and I have is to keep you informed on what are the policies and legislations being proposed and how you can get involved in having your voice heard in Washington. Very good. And Carl, closing thought, please. Voting is once every two years, once every four years, but engagement is a full-time occupation. And I would encourage you as a listener and as a resident member, get to know your members of Congress and your state senators because you'd be surprised. They want to hear from constituents. They often don't know what's going on behind every rock and fence posts in their communities. So they're always looking to understand what's going on in the local economy. And even if you're a Democrat and your congressman's a Republican, don't be afraid to 
engage with that office. It's relatively easy to do. It's sending an email. It's setting up a coffee with a staff member. Do the basic groundwork because you'd be surprised at at how interesting what we're trying to do is to a, a policymaker. And don't leave it up to Steve and I necessarily. I mean, we'll do our darndest, but hearing from constituents and not paid advocates is really what churns the butter. And so please take it upon yourself to get to know your local elected officials and let them know what you do and look for opportunities to just plant a seed, plant a flag, and we'll try to fertilize it and water it. Absolutely. Something not to be afraid of. Thank you, gentlemen, for joining us here on the Res Talk podcast. And we'll give the listeners back their ears now. And we would like you to stay tuned in to ResNet through the various mediums of communication and have you back again to listen to Res Talk next time. Thank you, everyone. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the Res Talk podcast. If you're prone to building markets, surf on over to resnet.us slash professional to learn more or to join the email list. You can also find ResNet on Facebook or Twitter. Quote for today related to our topic is by Simon Sinek. Leadership is not about the next election. It's about the next generation. If you're interested in feeding back to ResNet on what you heard here today or would like to hear a new topic covered or just have a general question, please send an email to info at resnet.us. If you've not subscribed, please do so. As always, thank you for listening to ResTalk. Take care. Thanks for listening to the ResTalk podcast. This podcast is hosted by Bill Spohn and is a production of ResNet, the Residential Energy Services Network. The best way to listen to this podcast is to subscribe on an iPhone using the podcast app or on an Android device by downloading the Stitcher app and searching for ResTalk. If you are willing, a review on iTunes of the podcast app will help others find the show and would be very much appreciated. We look forward to talking again soon on Res Talk. Mm-hmm.